Exodus 1, 1 through 14. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Shimon, Levi, and Judah, Yesakar, Zebulun, and Minyamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers in all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramamses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The word of the Lord. Today we're beginning uh, a new series on the book of Exodus. And, uh, you know, Exodus is really volume two of a five-volume book. Now, we began uh, a couple of years ago uh, in the book of Genesis. Genesis is volume one of this book. Exodus is volume two. And we're going to be getting into that over the next several weeks. Now, um, one of the most amazing things about Exodus is really how relevant this story is. Uh, over the last number of years, there's been a theory many sociologists have. It's called secularization theory. Secularization theory says that as the world modernizes, as we get more technologically and scientifically advanced, as we become more educated, they say that, that uh, the world is going to get less religious. Uh, one of the interesting things is today that theory is actually in decline. Uh, some of the most prominent representatives of that theory now are saying, well, you know, we thought that was what was going to happen, but the data just doesn't support it. The world is actually getting more religious, not less. Now, here's the thing. Here in America, it is true. Recent surveys uh, indicate that there is a measurable decline in formal religious participation here in America, but that doesn't mean that people aren't spiritually hungry. They're just looking for it in different places. So instead of just like a handful of religions that you could um, look for your spiritual options, there are now literally thousands of spiritual options out there. And one of the things that happens when you begin exploring all of those different options is uh, sooner or later you start running into a handful of basic concepts that are present in every single spiritual option that's out there. And one of the most basic concepts is this, salvation. What is that? 
no matter what spiritual option you are exploring, every single one of them has some version of salvation. They'll call it different things, whether it's nirvana or moksha or divine uh, consciousness or enlightenment, whatever it might be. But every single one of those um, versions of salvation is basically an answer to two of the most basic questions that all human beings have wrestled with throughout all of humanity. What are those questions? First one is, what's wrong with the world? The second one is, what's the solution? You know what the answers to those questions are? That's your theology of salvation. And every single person sitting in this room has a theology of salvation because you have answers to those questions, whether you've ever thought about it or not. You've got answers to those questions. So when the Bible addresses those questions, it says that the problem is sin and the solution is salvation. And that's where things start getting difficult for us. Because in our culture, when we hear those words, sin and salvation, it's very difficult for us to hear those words without being weighed down by all the cultural baggage that's gotten attached to those words. But this is really important for us because we don't understand what those words really mean. Uh, it, this is important because if, if you are a Christian, it, it's important to understand those words so that you know what it is you're embracing. But if you're not a Christian, it's important to understand so that you know what it is you're rejecting. And, and unfortunately, most of the time, we don't know. We don't understand. The book of Exodus is one of the best places to strip away the baggage. It, 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 it is an epic story. It's an exciting story. It's a wonderful story, but it's also one of the best places to understand what exactly the Bible means when it talks about sin and salvation. Do you want to understand what the Bible says about it? Not what Google says, not what YouTube says, but what the Bible says. If you want to understand, we're going to look at Exodus. And as we do that this week, this, um, this first passage that we just read is kind of the introduction to the story, the first 14 verses. Um, but already, just in this short little passage that's introducing the story, we learn a lot about salvation. We're going to see, especially this morning, the scope of salvation, the essence of salvation, and the accomplishment of salvation. Some of you are thinking, all of that is in the first 14 verses? Yep. And we're going to look at it, okay? So first, the scope of salvation. Um, the first verse really picks up where the Genesis story left off. The larger part of the book of Genesis is focused on the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob's son Joseph ends up in Egypt where he becomes essentially the prime minister of Egypt. And then Joseph brings all of his family into Egypt with him in order to escape a famine that was afflicting the ancient world at that time. And so Exodus picks up after Joseph's family has already been in Egypt for about 400 years now. And that's where the story begins. And in verse 7, it says, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, do you see where it says they were fruitful and multiplied? Friends, that is the ancient equivalent of a hyperlink. A hyperlink is when you're reading something online, and if you have a few words that are highlighted, if you click on those words, it opens up another document or another resources that tells you more information that's related to those words. So, um, verse 7 is a hyperlink. The hyperlink says, hey, this is related to something. Click on this link and we'll tell you more. 
Verse 7 is a hyperlink that goes all the way back to Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, it's talking about the creation of the world. God created the heavens and the earth. He created the plants and the animals. He created the first human beings. And when God created humanity, it says that he said to them, it says he blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Verse 7 is a hyperlink pointing back to verse 1, I mean, to Genesis 1, and it's saying that when it says that the Israelites were being fruitful and multiplying, it's a way of saying that they were fulfilling God's vision for creation. Now, what is God's vision for creation? If, if you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, um, one of the things that leaps out at you is how wide the scope is of all that God is delighting in there. It says he created the heavens and the earth. He created the physical, material world. And, and he called the material world, he said, this is good. And then it, it says that God literally got his hands in the dirt, in the dust, and he was creating human beings out of the dust of the world. And he looked at uh, human beings and he said, I want you to cultivate this world. I want you to care for this world. I want you to enjoy this world. I want you to flourish in every possible way, uh, physically, personally, relationally, socially, uh, vocationally, culturally. The scope of God's vision is incredibly wide in the book of Genesis, okay? So when verse 7 tells us that the people of Israel were being fruitful and multiplying, it's a way of saying that, that God's vision was actually moving forward for creation. But, and you knew there was a but coming, right? Because every good story has got a problem that needs to be solved. But it says, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, turned them into slaves. Now, this is incredibly important because when it says that Pharaoh turned them into slaves, uh, Exodus, the book of Exodus is not just an historical account of something that happened thousands of years ago. It is that, but it's also far, far more than that. Because over and over again in the Bible, it, it keeps going back to the book of Exodus and lifting up Exodus as a paradigm for humanity, as a paradigm of salvation, saying this is what it means to be saved, not just for one people at one time and one place, but for all people in every time and in every place. So when it says that Pharaoh turned them into slaves, here's what it's saying. Pharaoh represents anyone or anything that prevents you from participating and enjoying in the full scope of God's vision for your life and in this world. It represents any person, any system, any structure, any entity, any force, anything that prevents you from enjoying and participating in God's um, vision for your life and in this world, which means that salvation is rescue from anything that prevents you from enjoying the full scope of God's vision for your life and for this world. And if you think about it, that could actually mean a lot of different things. Um, anything that prevents you from enjoying God's vision for this life and this world, that could be sickness or illness or disease. That could be depression or anxiety. That could be um, addiction or depression or loneliness. That could be uh, uh, unhealthy patterns of thinking or behavior. It could be a lot of different things. But when you read the book of Exodus, one of the things you certainly see is Exodus is a book about justice. That one of the things that is really going on here is that it, this is a book about rescue from political, physical, and economic oppression. If, if you don't see that, you're missing one of the main things that Exodus is actually about. The people of Israel were enslaved politically, physically, economically, and salvation for them meant deliverance from that political, 
uh, physical and economic salvation. It has to mean that. Salvation has to mean social deliverance. It has to mean political deliverance. It has to mean physical deliverance. It has to mean economic deliverance. And you're saying, gosh, make up your mind. The reason you can't reduce salvation to just one thing is because the Bible doesn't reduce it to just one thing. It's a wide scope. God's vision for the world is incredibly wide, which means that salvation to to rescue from all the things that prevent you from rejoicing and enjoying in God's vision must mean rescue from all those different things. It fits into a very wide scope here. Okay, And that means that, by definition, salvation is going to have political, social, economic, physical implications. It has to. I mean, the Bible is full of this. Read the rest of the book of Exodus or read the prophets in the Old Testament or read the Gospel of Luke. You know, I I say this from time to time here. The Bible was woke thousands of years before the rest of the world was. That you cannot, when you read the Bible, you cannot miss God's concern for the poor, the oppressed, the abused, and the marginalized. It's, it's there on almost every single page of the Bible, okay? So the first thing we see here is the scope of salvation. It's rescue from anything that prevents you from enjoying the full scope of God's vision for your life and for the world. But the second thing we see here is the essence of salvation. Because here's the question, Okay? If, um, if Pharaoh is preventing the Israelites from um, enjoying God's vision for their life, then uh, as soon as we get them out of slavery, um, everything should be cool, right? I mean, that's what we expect to happen, um, and you would think that's true, but if that were the case, then the book of Exodus would actually be done by chapter 15, because chapter 15 is, well, they go through the Red Sea, the Egyptians got drowned in the water, end of the Egyptians, end of slavery, Should be the end of the story, right? The problem with that is there's still 25 more chapters to go in the book. If if salvation were simply just getting the Israelites out of physical slavery, then it should be over by chapter 15, but it's not. Why? You remember how we said there's a hyperlink in verse 7 that points us back to Genesis 1? There's another hyperlink in the passage. And it points us forward to the rest of the book of Exodus. In, in the last two verses of this passage, um, there's a word that um, occurs five times. And it gets translated a little bit differently in different places because if you translated it literally, it, it just sounds kind of awkward. But if we read the last two verses literally, here's what it says. They, the Egyptians, ruthlessly made the people of Israel serve and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of service in the field. In all their service, they ruthlessly made them serve. That word serve is the Hebrew word avad. And after this, it appears 95, 92 more times in the book of Exodus. That's a lot. In fact, it's not just one of the most important words in the book of Exodus. It's one of the most important words in the Bible, avad, to serve. You see, the Israelites were being crushed by their service, by their avad to Pharaoh. But then after that, over and over again, God keeps going to Moses and he says, look, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may avad me, that they may serve me. He doesn't say, let my people go, that they may go live however they want. 
He doesn't say, let my people go that they may no longer have any masters in their life whatsoever. He says, let my people go that they may serve me. The big question is not, will you serve? The big question is, whom will you serve? Because everybody serves something. There's no such thing as not serving. And one of the main messages of the book of Exodus is that if you serve anything but God, you're a slave. And if you have any master in your life other than God, that master will crush you. Because what is the book of Exodus all about? Yeah, you know, the first 15 chapters, they really are exciting. It's fireworks. It's, it's really, it really is an epic story in every single way. But from chapter 16 to the rest of the book, it's not that exciting. In fact, a lot of it is really hard to read. You have all these laws and regulations and stipulations that are all about what? How to build this tent. It's called the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? Basically, the tabernacle is the place of worship. Do you realize what this means? Avad means service, but it can also mean worship. Exodus begins in Avad slavery, but it ends in Avad worship. Avad begins with the Isra- I mean, Exodus begins with the Israelites in Avad slavery to Pharaoh, but it ends with them in Avad worship to Yahweh. The problem is, throughout the rest of the book of Exodus, the Israelites don't want to worship God. They don't want to serve God. They're having a real issue with that. You see, just getting them out of slavery isn't enough. Yes, okay, salvation is rescue from anything that prevents you from enjoying God's vision for the world, but it's not just the things outside of you that keep you from God. It's the things inside of you as well. It's the things that are inside of you. Those, you know, the things outside of you, those are relatively easy for God to deal with. The external bondage and oppression that the Israelites were suffering, it was horrible. We can't minimize that. But if you think about it, that was relatively easy for God to deal with. 15 chapters, a few plagues, the Red Sea, boom, they're out. It's over. They're out of slavery. But then for the rest of the book, for the next 25 chapters, oh, and by the way, for the next three books after that, because remember, this is a five-volume series, You keep seeing the Israelites grumbling and complaining against God. And I'm not trying to bag on them because we do the same thing too. This is a picture of us. The Exodus, again, I said that Exodus is not just a story about these people thousands of years ago. The Bible says Exodus is a paradigm for all people in all times and all places. And what you see in Exodus is the Israelites constantly grumbling and complaining against God, constantly falling into rebellion against God, constantly falling into idolatry of all kinds of other false gods other than God. They don't want to worship God. They don't want to serve God. You see, getting them out of physical slavery was relatively easy. The the external oppression is relatively easy for God to deal with. It's the internal oppression. That's the real slavery. You know what what the big challenge for God in the book of Exodus is? And because, as I just said, the book of Exodus is not just about the Israelites. It's about you and me. You know what God's real challenge in your life is? It's not how to get you out of slavery. It's how to get the slavery out of you. That's the real slavery. It's the internal oppression and bondage that is far more oppressive in our lives than the external oppression and bondage. But, you know, as soon as I say that, um, you know what the real slavery is? It's, it's the internal bondage to serving anything other than God. Friends, that is the biblical definition of sin. 
Sin is serving anything other than God. Sin is when you find um, and when you build your life, your identity, your security, your significance, your happiness, your fulfillment, when you build that on anything other than God. And you realize, as soon as I say that, we are on a head-on collision with our culture because what I just said, that is our culture's definition of what it means to be free. Our culture says that real freedom is not having any masters. Our culture says that real freedom uh, means being free to live however you want without any external restraints on you whatsoever. So that's our baseline narrative. But Exodus is saying that if you live like that, you are a slave. By the way, Jesus says the same thing too. It's really interesting. If you read the Gospels, and you read everything Jesus says in the Gospels through the lens of Exodus, one of the amazing things is how much Exodus language Jesus uses. It's, it's constantly coming up. So, for instance, in Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you can't serve God and money. That's Exodus language. He's saying you'll either serve God or you'll serve money, but you're going to serve something. Exodus language. Or, for instance, in, um, in John chapter 8, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone practices sin, they are a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Jesus is saying that, that the real bondage, the real oppression in our life is our bondage and the oppression to the internal slavery of the sin in our hearts. And here's the thing. I mean, you understand who Jesus is talking to. This Exodus language would have been very effective with the Israelites, the Jewish people, because in Jesus' day, they were still living under Roman occupation. They were still an oppressed people. The, the Exodus story was paradigmatic for their life. It would have resonated with them. They would have said, yeah, we're still oppressed. Yeah, we need to be set free. And yet here's Jesus talking to the, this oppressed people group. And by the way, he's one of the oppressed people group. He knows what it is to be oppressed. He's talking to this oppressed, marginalized, subjugated group of people. And Jesus has the audacity to come to these people and say, repent. The first words out of his mouth when he began his mission, repent what? Jesus is saying that it's the internal oppression and bondage that is the real slave master in our lives. That's the real problem of our lives. Now, so let's ask this question. Do you think Jesus was just socially unaware? Do you think Jesus was one of those people with really low emotional intelligence, just couldn't read the social cues, had no idea what he was saying? Every family has one of those people, right? Crazy Uncle Fred. Yeah, you've got a crazy Uncle Fred in your family, right? Crazy Uncle Fred's the guy who's always showing up at family events and, and saying really awkward things and embarrassing himself, embarrassing everybody else. And then you just got to kind of go over there. Come on, Uncle Fred, we'll just sit you down over. Sorry, everybody, he doesn't know what he's saying. He's just, you know, he can't read the cues. Do you think that Jesus is like the ancient Middle Eastern version of crazy Uncle Fred? No. Jesus is not socially unaware. Jesus knows exactly what he's saying, and he knows exactly whom he's saying it to. Jesus will not let us get away with cheap, easy answers to the biggest problems of our life and the solution to those problems. So, for instance, in our culture, we operate under the assumption that the way to make this world a better place is to fix the external assist, uh, systems. Remember those two questions we began with. What's wrong with the world and what's the solution? 
Our world, our culture operates under the assumption that the way to make the world a better place is to address those external systems. So that means things like better education, better technology, better medicine, better science, better politics, better social systems. We operate under the assumption that, that those things are the real problems. The external systems are the real problems. So fixing the systems fixes the problem. The only way we can say that is by making huge assumptions about the answers to those two questions. If our biggest problems really are the external systems, then fixing the systems would fix the problems. But if our biggest problem really is our internal bondage, our internal slavery to false gods, if, if our biggest problem really is that we're alienated from God and, and all of the, the alternate little gods that are constantly pulling us away from God, and, and, and wreaking havoc in our lives, if that's, that is an entirely different problem. So, for instance, in our culture, ironically, you know, when we want to talk about what's the real solution to fixing the problems of the world, we automatically assume, well, it's fixing the systems, all those things I just talked about. Spiritual considerations really never enter the conversation. And if they do, well, it's really kind of presented as an optional add-on, isn't it? You know, it's supplementary, you know, like we say things like, well, who's to say what's really true? Um, all religions basically teach the same thing. And if it works for you personally, great, but just keep that private. That stuff doesn't really, it's not really an important part in the biggest solutions to our world's biggest problems. Now, listen, I understand that we live in a pluralistic culture. And the thing is, rather than contend for the various spiritual truth claims that are out there in a respectful, civilized way, but rather than contend for those truth claims, what we do in our culture is we relativize them. And when we relativize those truth claims, we're doing two things. First, we're saying those claims aren't really true. And secondly, we're saying that spiritual truth doesn't really matter. You know what that is? That is the spiritual truth claim buried in relativistic language. The claim is that spiritual reality doesn't ultimately matter. It doesn't play an important part in the solution to our world's biggest problems. That is a spiritual truth claim. So the reality is that when we talk like that, um, we're, when we relativize spiritual truth claims, and listen, you know, I also understand, i got to say this, that, that because of the division and the hostility that result, because people do fight, about religious truth. We do. We got to acknowledge that. Because people fight about it, because there's so much division and hostility over it, I understand that that is a huge part of the motivation to relativize the spiritual truth claims. I get it. But when we relativize spiritual truth claims, we're not really relativizing them. We're, all we're doing is substituting another truth claim in their place. And we're saying this is the ultimate truth about spiritual reality. And the ultimate truth is that spiritual reality doesn't matter. The book of Exodus says, the whole Bible says, in fact, Jesus says, nothing matters more. Nothing matters more. The only way that, that we can understand the depths and the truths of what salvation really is, is to understand that nothing matters more than your relationship to God and, and all of the alternate little gods that are pulling you away from God and wreaking havoc in your life and the world because that's where all the external problems come, with, come from in the first place. Friends, um, the essence of salvation is, is 
God's real challenge is not how to get you out of slavery. It's how to get the slavery out of you. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the scope of salvation, okay? God's vision for the world is a wide vision. And salvation means anything, um, rescue from anything that prevents us from enjoying that vision. And the essence of salvation is, is God's challenge to not just get us out of slavery, but to get the slavery out of us. But the, the last point is the accomplishment of salvation. And I'm only going to say just a little bit about this right now, because really, we're going to spend the rest of this series uh, talking about the accomplishment of salvation. But already in this passage, there's actually um, a hint. There's, there's something in here that actually sets the paradigm for us for how salvation is actually accomplished. It's really simple. It's really obvious, but it's incredibly important. And that's simply this. Salvation is not something that we can accomplish ourselves. It's something that has to be accomplished for us. Let me ask you a question. It's a no-brainer. You're going to think that's a silly question, but let's ask it anyway, okay? In this story, the Israelites, okay, in this story, are they presented as having the power to rescue themselves? No. When you're in bondage, when you're in oppression, when you're in chains, do you have the power to rescue yourself? No. That, friends, that is the difference between Christianity and every other approach to life, not just every other religion, but every approach to life on offer out there, whether it's religious or not. Because let's go back to those two questions again, okay? What's wrong with the world and what's the solution? Every approach to life essentially says that whatever the solution is, it's our power and our responsibility to accomplish it for ourselves. So for instance, religions, every other religion except Christianity basically says if you want to be saved, you've got to live a good life. You got to be a good person. You got to obey the rules. At, at the very least, make sure that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Or if you're into other forms of spirituality, you got to make sure that you pray hard enough, meditate hard enough. It's all up to you. You know, the irony about this is that secular solutions basically operate on the same principle. Especially in our current cultural moment, it's really it's all about technique. It's all about working on yourself, improving yourself. It's all about upping your game. It's all about, um, you know, trying to make yourself a better person and make yourself, uh, make this world a better place. And, you know, at least with secularism, I understand that because if, if there is no God and this world is all there is, then really our only hope is within our own responsibility. There is no hope for a better world except for us trying to make it the place we think it ought to be. But every single approach to life, whether it's religious or non-religious, basically says that it's all up to you. You know what happens when you do that? That doesn't liberate you. That simply sets up another slave master in your life that basically says, serve me or I'll crush you. Listen, if you live for uh, success or status, if you live for um, career or your grades, if you live for romance or your children or your family, if you live for uh, approval or adulation, even if you just live for trying to be the best person that you can be, and then something goes wrong with that or you fail to live up to that, it crushes you. And, and our problem, our, really, our, our deepest dilemma is that we've got all these slave masters in our lives that are saying, serve me or I'll crush you because you are going to serve something. There is no such thing as not living for something. There's no such thing as not serving something. So salvation, real salvation, doesn't mean removing you from service. <clears throat> it means transferring your service from all kinds of false lords and masters to the only Lord and master who instead of saying, serve me or I'll crush you, actually brings healing into your life. 
because there's only one Lord and one master of whom that is true. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's talking about himself, and he says, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you realize the amazing thing about what Jesus is saying here? Who's Jesus? Jesus is the ultimate and the true and ultimate Lord. He is the the true and ultimate master of the universe. He is the true and ultimate God of creation. We owe Jesus, if that's really who he is, we owe him all of our love, all of our devotion, all of our service. The sad, tragic reality of our lives is that we would rather give our love and our devotion and our service to almost anything but Jesus. And yet, the amazing thing is that Jesus Christ is the only Lord and Master out there who instead of saying, serve me or I'll crush you, is the only one who instead says, I will serve you by being crushed for you. Because that's exactly what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was crushed for our rebellion. He, Jesus went, he endured the ultimate oppression of, of bearing all of the crushing burdens of our sin upon his shoulders. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ, the Lord and master of the universe, became your servant in order to free you from all the false lords and masters that want to crush your life. And when you embrace that, when you see Jesus doing that for you, you know what that does for you? That makes you a servant, but a true servant, because it transforms your avad from slavery to worship. Because Jesus Christ is the only Lord and master that became a servant for you on the cross. He has freed you from all the false lords and masters of your life, enabling you to serve him truly and freely. And friends, I want to leave you with one big application for you to think about this week. And it's really just a question for you to ponder this week. And I think you probably know what the question is. What are you serving? No, what are you really serving? Do you know what it is? And, and how's that working for you? If you're here this morning and, and you are not a Christian, if you don't believe that, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, understand, remember what we said at the beginning, everybody has a, theory of, a theology of salvation. Everybody has answers to those questions, which means that everybody has some kind of a Savior in your life. If Jesus isn't your Savior, something else is. How's that working out for you? And if you are here this morning and you do believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, if you are a Christian, what false saviors are you still inclined to go and serve, to go and worship, to go and give your life to? How's that working out for you? Reflect on that this week. Friends, Jesus Christ is the only Lord and Master who instead of saying, serve me or I'll crush you, says, I will serve you by being crushed for you. So serve me, love me, walk with me, trust me, he says, for if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray.